0: Governance podcast from the Centre of the Study of Governance and Society. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre. When does law promote changes to social norms? And what kind of assumptions need to be made for us to believe that law can actually promote positive changes to social norms? These are important questions in studies of governance that look at the relationship between formal and informal institutions. And I'm delighted that I have with with me today Shubangi Roy, who's a legal scholar from the University of Münster in Germany, to talk about these fundamental questions about the relationship between law and social norms. So welcome, Shubangi. It's great to have you with us here on the Governance Podcast.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: Okay, so just to start off, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about given your background in law, what got you interested in this question about the relationship between the legal system and the ability of changes in legislation to bring about changes in social norms? What's the sort of context that got you interested in this pretty fundamental question, actually?
1: No, definitely. So it's interesting because my context explains a lot because I come from India and I studied law. My law school, five years of law school was done in India. And we have extensive laws. So we have one of the lengthiest constitution in the world. and in, And generally in India, we have aspirational laws. So it's very clear that things will not happen overnight. But we believe that the law should reflect the best of India. So we have a lot of laws and very aspirational laws. But it was very difficult not to then step out of the classroom and wonder what happened to those laws. And that's where the investigation started from. So the context, I'll I'll give you one case, one legislative context, which we'll keep through the next discussion. And it's about dowry. So I started with asking why laws don't help change the social norm of dowry. So dowry is the context where girls' family pays groom's family money in, con- in exchange of arranging the marriage and in a context where over 90% of marriages are arranged the quantum is a lot and so you understand the quantum of dowry also that's two to three times of the family household income so it's it represents a lot of money and because of it you have female feticides under investment in girl education because it's just too expensive to have a girl and then get her married So we criminalized the practice in 1960s. And we progressively made things on paper in law, harsher and better in a way for the victim and harsher for the people demanding dowry, to the extent that for dowry related violence and deaths, we have a reverse presumption of guilt. So that's the highest you can do on paper with law, right? The assumption is that the moment a complaint is filed, the husband, his parents, and his siblings, so like an entire group of people, including elderlies, are presumed guilty hmm. before the trial even commences. In a, con- in a legal context where you can have cases pending for years, so the process itself is punishment in this context so we couldn't have figured out a legal legislative solution harsher than this and yet in 2017 the last data i have 20 women were dying every day of the year due to dowry related violence so what is so so that you understand what this number represents people gave dowry so the offence already was committed they got their daughters married into these families there was violence demanding more money and till now the law is not involved and when the violence leave reached a level where the girl ended up the daughter-in-law ended up dying mm. that's representative of the 20 women who die every day of the year so you can see how Like at some point as legal scholars, we have to stop saying change the law (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we have to look like what can the law do? So that's where I come from. And what I looked at, and it's interesting because this is a this is almost a bit of a tweak, but considerable, as we'll see in our discussion, because all the other people in legal scholarship who've done this research come from the other place. From almost the opposite perspective, which is they have always wanted to understand how laws work, so the idea has always been in economics and social science research that on paper law should not work, and they should not have as much influence as they do because there's not hundred percent enforcement, people don't know the law, etc so given all of these weaknesses of law, why does law work so I use the same literature, but in a way, I'm asking the opposite question, which is, uh, why don't laws work in certain
0: contexts? Mm -hmm. So if we just to clarify, if we go back to the dowry example, so you say that that, that the, the practice was made illegal in 1960. So what is the sense? In terms of how prevalent the practice has remained throughout that period since there was this legal change, is it still a very widespread practice, but that's just sort of now underground, or
1: so the the people who have done research on the quantity and amount of dowry demanded, they show a progressive increase. Hmm. So we have Weaver and Chiblanka, I think. I may be getting the name wrong, but they did like a recent study. It was published in 2017, I think. And they showed a progressive increase in both the number of people asking for dowry and the amount of dowry expected. So it's not just stayed prevalent, Mm. but it's become worse.
0: So this is a case where the law has not affected the actual practice of it's not had its original intent it's it's a case where the law as i understand it was meant to eradicate the practice but if anything in the recent past you're suggesting it may even have intensified
1: yes so yeah at, at its weakest we can say that the law failed in changing the norm yeah. it, it may not be possible to say that the law made it worse because yeah. that's a position it's difficult to draw. But yeah. It failed that much, I think we can say safely.
0: So that's a good opportunity to sort of get into the heart of thinking about these relationships here between law and norms. So what kind of hypotheses have people put forward for why the law may not have worked in this place in this particular kind of instance? What kind of theories are out there that try to explain why, if you have a law that, that bans dowry? people might still actually carry on engaging in the practice
1: so for the longest time we kept focusing on the law not being enforced and that's kind of the signature move we make as lawyers
0: yeah. which
1: is where like if it's first you talk about legal design so there were some flaws some small things we criminalized the act of giving dowry that means that even the one giving dowry could have been persecuted so then who's complaining but then we cla- we slowly over time corrected the legal design flaws and then there was the enforcement discussion and there still is which for me is where the problem lies because in recently also in 2015-16 and almost periodically every few years a matter comes to high court or supreme court which is shocking enough the girl has been brutally killed or it shocks the conscience because at a, at a society level, somewhere we all agree that it's a bad practice and the court's response generally is often to go, okay, so the state needs to do a better job enforcing it. And then they haul up the state government, the state government says that they're trying to, you know, so the matter goes back into, it's not working because there's just not enough will on the political will to make a difference. So largely, that's the one that's where most of the discussion lies, how to make the law better.
0: And your perspective actually indicates that looking at simply enforcement issues isn't necessarily the best sort of starting point for thinking about why the passage of more laws doesn't actually translate into these kind of transformations in norms. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about why you yourself are sceptical of the kind of lack of enforcement theory.
1: So for me, there are two parts to it, because the first part is, realistically speaking, when it comes to dealing with things like norms, which are heavily embedded in your community, enforcement necessarily requires active participation of the victims and potential victims and whistleblowers from within the communities. Achieving that level of community participation, again, requires us to look at the community. So the law in and of itself will not make a difference. Enforcement by the state without the voluntary participation of the community will not make a difference. So there's one inherent weakness in just looking at laws and enforcing laws and basically using the deterrence value of law, right? Mm -hmm. We are trying to deter using legal sanctions. That itself requires a level of community participation, which you will not attain by just talking amongst lawyers. The second part, and that's kind of what we can discuss today is how law is animated in the society cannot be understood without understanding the society. So what we understand by words like dowry, right? And what is criminally punishable dowry is in a way mediated between the two families arranging the marriage. So am I calling it dowry? Or is it expectations, which is often the common pahalans word you will use in talking about the wedding? Is it just the gifts you would want to give to your daughter? You see, so all of these euphemisms are on paper dowry. But for the two families negotiating, what these words mean is not necessarily always the same as in the code book. So that's the second part of the story. You can make all the laws you want to, but till you look at the community side of things, you don't know how they will use these words and these laws. So given all so the, of that...
0: So the meaning of the law might change when it interacts with the 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 community it's directed towards. That's one of the points that you're making. Am I definite, right
1: Definitely. Yeah. Both the meaning of the law and how we use the law.
0: Yeah. And then... Is another issue that when we're thinking about this relationship, it matters if we're thinking about meanings, about where the law comes from. So how is that how the law is actually perceived? So does the community perceive it to be done to them or imposed on them by a group that they may see as distant or alien, which certainly if you're thinking about, I mean, in many countries, when people talk about the experience of marginalised groups, They speak about often those who pass laws or enforce laws even as being in some sense alien or seem to be antagonistic to the community. And that affects whether or not people actually are likely to enforce them in multiple arenas.
1: Definitely. So that I think is also this approach to how what we think of laws in general. Right. So there is the question of how we interpret the word dowry. Mm. But then there is also this part of how we receive any law from a state. Mm. And what you bring forward is indeed where I think the difference lies in how me from my institutional context of India or people from marginalized communities receive law versus how legal scholars and economic scholars think of as law. Because there is this presumption that like... Abiding by the law itself is a normatively superior thing to do. So it's a socially acceptable behavior to comply with the law. And that's kind of the underlying assumption in legal scholarship. That, however, as you rightly pointed out, is not true when you look at historically communities that have had a difficult relationship with the state. Right? So we have data from Ghana, we have data from El Salvador, we have data from Trinidad and Tobago, China, India, that this idea that both actually, so not just the normative implication, that expectation that laws, complying with the laws is socially acceptable, but also the empirical expectation that everyone around me will comply with the law, both these expectations don't exist in most of these jurisdictions. Right. So I don't believe that if I'm not complying with the law, if I'm smoking where it's asking not to smoke or if I'm littering where it's asking not to litter, I am not scared that someone will call me out because they are also not complying with the law. I'm also not complying with the law. And at a community level, we have agreed that it's not relevant to comply with the law. Right. So that's one set of evidence we are getting from these countries. But we are also getting this evidence from country, from communities in Europe and U.S. So research done on legal cynicism in marginalized communities, which have always felt targeted by the law for their heterogeneous preferences or for the relationship they have with the police. At some point in their relationship with the state, The trust that law reflects morality, that law reflects what is socially acceptable, that law reflects normatively better behavioral options was eroded. Mm -hmm. To the extent that in one of the studies where they studied three Philadelphia neighborhoods, the title I think was called We Don't Call the Cops and Here's Why. And it discusses really how For most of the disputes, and this can involve violent disputes, the community just prefers finding solutions amongst themselves rather than go to the state because we don't trust state and state agents to reflect our normativity. So that's the second condition. So the first one that we discussed was customs help clarify what laws mean and in a way there's a dialogue between the custom and the community about what the law must mean so that was in reference to a particular law what does dowry mean what does sexual harassment mean that's a negotiation we do at the community level and that and this is the second condition which is we have to before we make a law and presume that it communicates something to the people we have to ask what law generally communicates to people in this context.
0: And although, th- just, thinking, just thinking there about the relationship between the, these two factors, so if we're in a situation where the law is being passed by a group that in some sense is seen to be antagonistic to another group, like a marginalized group, that could on the one hand make it less likely that those actors are going to follow or to enforce the law. But it could also, to go back to your point about what happened in the the dowry case, just mean that those actors, insofar as they receive the message from the law, they they decide to reinterpret it in their own terms. So in in the dowry case, even if the negotiations don't take, even if the law has an effect, if the negotiations don't take place in the way they used to do, they still take place. It's just people have changed the terms in which they sort of describe them or perhaps the, the sort of context in which it happens. So is there a relationship between those two factors they are operating?
1: Yes, so these are the two alternatives. I believe renegotiating how we think of these words and these specific words with respect to specific laws is a smaller problem for the state in a way than when we get completely alienated. So, So this is the interesting part because when we talk about how law changes behavior, we are very cognizant of the fact that shame has psychological cost, right? And the presumption is that community in a way enforces law by shaming each other for doing things against the law. And that's kind of the bedrock, one of the bedrock uh, mechanisms through which law changes behavior, except the literature and psychology will tell you that there are other routes through which you can minimize the psychological cost of shame. And in a way, what we are discussing are two other routes. The second route is, and especially in systems where you're seeing a lot of other people doing the same thing, right? We kind of all decide to renegotiate what these words mean. So that all of us, like, I don't want to shame you because you are doing exactly what I'm doing. So you can call me right out. So we'll just figure out a way of tiptoeing around the issue, right? So minimizing the psychological cost by looking around us and saying, everybody else is doing it too. So like the one of the papers that best describes it, the title only covers it up, which is I am a hypocrite, but so is everyone else right? So that's a way of minimizing any dissonance we may be feeling if you're not doing the right thing, minimizing any shame we may be feeling if someone calls us out. So that's in a way what we are doing with calling dowry expectations and asking for a car. The, But at least for me, this is a little, it's still very problematic from the point of view of achieving the goal of this law. But at least we are still not saying, not alienating ourselves from the concept of law itself the third and this is the more problematic part that we're discussing the third way of reducing the cost psychological cost of shame is alienating ourselves from that self concept and that's something that we are very well aware of even within the legal literature so whenever you have teenagers who have been incarcerated we often see that this like because they have felt so harshly treated so young in their life that they feel constant reactance against the state. Hmm. And to an extent that sometimes the contrarian identity becomes more important. So I will not just ignore the law, hmm. but I will take pride in being the out.
0: In breaking it, yeah, in, in going against it, yeah.
1: Right, so this is the alienating side of shame. Hmm. So the fact that we recognize one of the three things, which is, or oh, the psychological cost of shame may make you not break the law, is good. But then we have to also consider these consequences and these costs of using shame to create change through law.
0: Okay, so you offer, as I understand it, quite a distinctive type of theory to explain why some of these attempts to change the law change norms rather by using the law and often fail in certain contexts so as I understand it one of the things you're saying is that the more you rely on the law or laws to try to change social norms the less effective this kind of strategy becomes. So the more laws you have, and if you're speaking about the Indian context in the beginning there, where there's actually quite a lot of law in place, I, the less effective that, that law may become. Now I wonder whether we could just work through, to, for the, the benefit of the listeners, what the stages of the argument there are, and how the kind of view that you're putting forward question some of the other views that have been sort of put forward in this area. So as I understand it, one of the theories that you're sort of questioning or pushing back on is the idea that the law can operate through a kind of expressive effect, where if you pass a law, even if this is in a country which has got what development theorists would describe as a low state capacity, so it may have relatively low capacity to enforce the law through the, the police force or the civil service, whatever the mechanisms may be, that the law can still have an effect because it empowers people at the local level who may benefit from some change in the, in the norms to take action against people who are going against their interests by enforcing what they consider to be a defective set of social norms. So this is almost seen to be almost like a kind of costless theory of passing a law, that if you just pass a law, even if you've got limited resources to enforce it, you still have this beneficial effect of empowering actors who are wanting to change the norms, who are sort of lower down the social hierarchy, if you like. Now, I wonder, can you say a bit about why is it you're pushing back on this kind of theory and actually saying that the more laws you have that try to perform this kind of function, the less effective they may actually be, which is what I understand your argument to be or part of it. Is that right?
1: Yes, so definitely. Let's start from just restating a bit of what the legal expression explanation is. It presumes, so we have a lot of literature in economic psychology law on how we care about what other people think and do. Right, So, depending on which domain you're from in social science, we have coordination games, cooperation games, we have these informational proxy that we use other people's behavior as in uncertain times. So there are all of these economic reasons why we care about other people's behavior. And then there are also psychological reasons. It matters to our self esteem that my mother likes me and that you think I am good at what I do. So, given so, this part of what we already know in social science was used by legal scholars to say, look, we care about what other people think and do, and we want to anticipate that. And then, law sometimes can give us this information. And therefore, by mere expression, create change because we will voluntarily comply now, right? Mm -hmm. Because we anyway were looking for this information and law is acting as proxy about this information. So you don't need enforcement. Law is having a symbolic value. And it is telling us in this case of social norms, it is telling us that it is bad to take dowry. People think that dowry taking is bad And just putting this message out there and communicating this message with the people can create change in and of itself. The reason I'm pushing back against it is for the same reason that I loved it initially, which was that it was a Eureka moment. I was like, oh, wow, I don't need to rely on state capacity to create this change. If we have enough political will, which we have had in India, to pass a law, against these norms then all I have to do is just make sure that everybody knows about it and the rest of the job will be done so and what's and what's the worst case scenario the worst case scenario is it will be another low on the books and too bad nothing happened and we are assuming the so that we are clear we are assuming there was no enforcement Yep. right we'll open Quickly, the can of worms in the end, what happens if there is selective enforcement? But let's assume for now that you have two alternatives: law communicates socially acceptable behavior, or law becomes a uh, word in the code book. So, if these were my two alternatives, and this was all that was associated with legal expression, we should have more laws because you don't know which one will stick and that's kind of the model we worked with when you have so many, when you have such urgent issues of like real lives getting affected people dying you think let's try it and see what happens the pushback i give is every time we try it there are certain costs that we are not recognizing and these costs are making sure in a way that future laws also will not have any expressive power or influence for that matter. And my argument goes as follows. So first question, in the Indian context that I'm talking, in the dowry context that we're talking, what is the likelihood that law will have expressive power? For it to have any expressive power, we need two conditions to pre-exist. So this has nothing to do with the actual law of dowry. These conditions should already be embedded in the institution. The first is that I should have better knowledge of the law. Or at the very least, I should have better knowledge of the law rather than in comparison to the social custom. Right. So. Intuitively speaking, that makes sense. If we are trying to use law as proxy for what society wants, I should not have clear, direct evidence of it. The second reason why law should be clearer than customs is because when in doubt, empirically speaking, we are much more likely to use the custom to clarify the law rather than the other way around. And we have evidence on it when it comes to words like sexual harassment. Right. What does that word mean? On paper, it seems like a rather clear law, right? Don't indulge in sexual harassment at workplace. But when participants in, a U- in UK workplaces were asked what they think is criminally punishable sexual harassment, rather than thinking of the law, they were looking at their own normativity and the people around them in their workplaces to decide what it means. So what that meant problematically for the legal expression explanation is the more frequent casual sexism and harassment was in the workplaces, the more we assumed that this must not be criminal, right? It's the same with domestic violence in Indian communities. The higher the level of violence, the more women presumed that low-level violence, clearly criminal in the law books, must not be. And we understand why, because it's difficult for us to accept that people we live with, work with, our fathers, our husbands, are criminals. So if there is any scope of interpretation in the law, I will interpret it in favor of the norm rather than the law. So that's the first condition that we were talking about. The law should be so clear that there is no scope of interpretation. Because we are dealing with a social norm. So the moment there is any confusion, we'll use the norm to clarify the law. The second condition is that there should be empirical and normative expectation that people within the right reference group should comply with the law. Now, the way legal scholarship deals with the issue is by assuming that the people we care about is like a homogeneous whole, right? Right. At best, when we want to be cognizant of the fact that we have more complex social lives, we say local laws are better representative of the diffused public opinion, diffused public opinion being the word, than the national population. Except if you look at around you and the scholarship on the subject in social identity and groups, Our self-concept is made of multiple identities and very different people matter for each of these identities, right? So it's not just that the local laws may not be representative of what I think. What I think is also shaped by very different reference groups for different topics, right? So when I'm at a conference in UK, I'm going to look at other colleagues to decide what is the social etiquette. But when I'm celebrating Diwali back home in India with my family, I'm just going to look at my family and my community. So it's not even India or Delhi that reflects my Diwali celebration. It's my family. So the idea that law is reflecting a common public opinion and that's where I want to embed my own behavior in is problematic to achieve in most contexts but then if this is the condition that you need for legal expression the next question is law should have no expressive power in any part of the world right because this idea that humans have a mosaic self-concept is not a India-specific issue you have as many social identities as I do but the reason it still works in some examples like the US-UK South Korea examples that we have on the literature, it's because no matter where you look, so no matter whether you're considering your family, your colleagues or your friends, there is a base level empirical and normative expectation in all of these different groups of people that legal compliance is a good thing. right? And as we already discussed about marginalized communities and literature from India, etc., This expectation, while it can exist, it does not always exist in every institutional context. So where it exists, legal expression is more likely to have an influence, right? Because to shame, I must be confident that I've like, let's say you are smoking in a public area where smoking is not allowed. I hate the smell of smoke. But, and there's a law, like, Maybe you're smoking right under the holding that says don't smoke, it's prohibited. I will not dare call you out unless I am confident that you and I and the bystanders all agree that not following the law is a bad thing, Hmm. right? So even when there is preference falsification, even when there are parts of societies that want to change the norm... Unless this empirical and normative expectation in favor of legal compliance does not exist, community enforcement of the law will not happen.
0: So, if we just follow up on that a little bit, so what is the what is going on there then in countries where, you know, you're you're giving examples of the UK. I think you also refer to Germany and the United States as well in your your work. What is happening there in terms of why it is that the idea that you should follow the law is so widely accepted amongst all of the multiple identities. Whereas that wouldn't be the case when we're talking about the Indian context or some other contexts. This is to do with sort of historical experiences about over time over, of how law has been formed. And the number of people saying, for the sake of argument, Western contexts that feel marginalized and have no real investment in the law, relatively speaking, is 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 fewer than would be the case in India. What what, what are the what are the explanations for the differences here is about how this is working?
1: So it'll be easier for me to talk about the Indian context because what I am working on is much more societies where law doesn't have salience. Yeah. So I'm starting looking at those communities.
0: Yeah.
1: So my conjectures about the Western society would be much more that so so I can transpose what I know of the Indian society and say the opposite for you, perhaps, but that would still just be a conjecture. So for the Indian context and for many of these contexts, what I believe is so now we understood how law to for law to have influence, you need need these conditions to be in place. right. But what happens when these conditions are not in place and you keep getting more and more laws? Mm -hmm. And that's what we did with India, because we got, because by the time we got independent and started exploring our own legal system, etc., the concept of laws changing behaviors and laws governing people was already rather well developed across the globe. So we kind of transplanted that idea, we continued with certain laws from our colonial times, And we had all of these laws and we wanted more laws. And the more laws you were getting on the books, which were clearly not being complied with, the more it reinforced the fact that there is no empirical and normative expectation that laws need to be complied with. So then we got stuck in this low compliance equilibrium where the presumption is that laws are not complied with. And I know that even in other countries where people who have been part of these communities and countries, telling them that, hey, this is the law does not change their behavior because they need a little more to believe that this particular law, as against all the others in the books, will actually be complied with. Right? So even in Uh, In the South American example, we have this interesting study on institutional insiders and outsiders, where a new IP law, like the intellectual property laws were developed. And the idea was that creating a more robust protection mechanism will make more companies file for patents. Except the researchers found that those companies with managers who were international managers, so like from MNCs with Europeans and Americans heading them, they filed for patent right after the law came out, right? Because they just needed the law on the paper to change their expectation that their rights will be protected. The institutional insiders, on the other hand, people who grew up within those states, needed more proof... So they waited. So they didn't start utilizing and enforcing and complying with the law immediately. They held back, waited, because just saying that the law has been passed does not update our expectation that it will be complied with. Right? So we are all stuck in this low compliance cask equilibrium and we are still asking for more laws and the more laws we ask for, the stronger we get stuck in them in this low compliance equilibrium. And the problem with legal expression specifically is that it gives us the illusion that there's no cost to it, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? Except the cost is such an important cost on how we interact with all laws, Mm -hmm. right? Because it updates our system level expectations because we, when we take information, when we use these things as informational proxy, I'm not just using dowry law to give me information about dowry. I'm also using dowry law to give me information about the intent of the state to enforce a law, the credibility of the state in giving me information, the likelihood that the society will enforce these laws. Right. So all of these system level expectations are getting updated. And these are not costs we consider.
0: I mean, I think I think this is a really fundamental point that you're you're bringing out this idea that even when it the law looks like it's costless, there are actually all these kind of hidden costs about the way in which people re- relate to the law in general. That seems to me quite a fundamental point. Have people made this point before or in a different form, or do you feel that it, this is something that you have you sort of developed independently there? Or?
1: So I'm talking specifically in reference to legal expression, but one of the books that really inspired me was by Kaushik Basu, who writes a book called Republic of Beliefs. Oh. And he makes a stronger claim, which is I only talk about laws which are not being enforced and laws in reference to social norms. He says every single law on paper works because people believe it works Mm. right so the for him the fundamental question is how do we make people believe that laws work for my part of the world because we don't have this belief in place for Mm. your part of the world you have to be careful that now that people believe laws work let us not over exploit it so that they are forced to update this expectation and they start believing that laws, okay, laws sometimes work, sometimes don't. Because we know once they enter into that, the likelihood is they will cascade towards the low compliance equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And we see that with the, with how people were, because of all the politicization around COVID pandemic, the vaccines, the lockdowns, like you start seeing the skepticism, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And... That, for me, is problematic because being stuck in low compliance equilibriums like India, I'm telling you, like the influence of law corrodes very fast.
0: No, that's that's fascinating. It really is. So I wonder if we could move on the final part of the conversation then to, to think about if if it's the case that in many of the situations you're looking at using the law, to generate these kind of, have these expressive or symbolic effects doesn't work in the way that people who've theorised in that way have suggested, then what are the strategies that can be used to try to change what people may often think to be, you know, for, for good reason, to be dysfunctional social norms in situations where the law may be ineffective or having more laws is actually going to diminish the power of the law law overall. So if we are dealing with cases like dowry or, I mean, other examples that I think people would be give would be foot foot binding of of girls in in China, female genital mutilation, some of these other practices that many people have sought to use law to change, what alternatives do we have if we want to see change in these kind of norms that have, you know, many people would argue very sort of imprisoning or narrowing effects on the, the people who are subject to them. What what can be done to try to break people out of, of them and into a, a di- onto a different path?
1: So I'm happy you asked that question because sometimes when you ha- end this conversation where we are at right now, the assumption is that I'm saying that laws don't work, so don't do anything. Mm-hmm. But we have to look at it in a short term and a long term, in a way, findings from what I'm saying, right? Long term, when we are using law, we have to consider the cost on the system level costs we discussed. Short term, this discussion is giving us some ideas, which is law doesn't have expressive power because it's law. Law has expressive power because people have certain empirical and normative expectations on what others are going to do. So what I want to do is in a way as to create social change, I want to update this expectation. In some contexts, laws work to do it, good for you. If I'm recognizing that's not the case for the specific problem at hand, what the route, like the process through which the change will start is by changing this expectation. And it's good that you brought up the foot binding case study from China because that's really one of those cases where we see this happen. So Jerry Mackey wrote a book, wrote a paper on this where he highlighted how foot binding and the practice of foot binding in China changed over one generation. So that means more than I think 80% or 9 85% of women had their foot bound in the generation before me. And then in my generation, I think it fell to less than 10%. And one of the mechanisms he says, which was really powerful in doing so, is holding these public meetings where powerful families and influential families, especially families of groom, potential grooms, would come out and publicly announce that they will neither bind the foot of their daughters nor let their sons marry anyone who had undergone foot binding. And because this public meeting changed the empirical expectation we had on what others are going to do, it led to widespread change. And And we have had UNICEF working papers on this topic suggesting a similar response, a similar policy approach to female genital mutilations in Africa, because that's also a very similar coordination problem You see in countries like Senegal, you have parts where only 6% of people practice it and then parts where 90% do. Because the idea is to keep your daughter marriageable, etc. And then to all those norms have a strong empirical expectation attached to it, which is I will do it if everyone else is doing it. And if we could, and because it's community and it's local community, right? It's geographically concentrated communities. That's what we are seeing with the 6% and 90% variation. So it will be easy to hold a meeting like this. But because we have been obsessing about only law sending the right message, Mm -hmm. we're not exploring these. In India, we have, I I would love to find out, it's an empirical question how successful it is, but we have a matrimonial site called nodowry.com and the idea is if I'm going to put my profile on it, that means that I'm saying no dowry.
0: Mm.
1: I'm wondering how effective it could be if we could just promote it and sell it as a great idea and see if that changes the empirical expectations.
0: Well, this is, I mean, this is a really interesting question because I mean, if you, what, when you mentioned the idea that in the Chinese case, they had some kind of a public meeting, a forum within which these kind of questions were discussed, what was the, I mean, I, I'm not familiar, I don't know the details of that case, but what was the process that brought about the actual forum? So was this something that was sort of generated within the community? Was it something like external agencies came in and organized these meetings? So where does the, what, what's the direction of the the sort of process here in terms of who gets the meeting off the ground or who spots an opportunity that maybe, by having this kind of meeting, we could perhaps prompt a change in the way that the practice operates?
1: So I will have a tendency to say that there is not a fixed recipe. Mm -hmm. So even in the Chinese context, this wasn't the first thing they tried. There are stories, and Mackie also discusses it, on how initially the idea was considered bad and barbaric only because the rulers had someone from the outside come and discuss it with them. So the process is not as clear-cut. So I don't think it will be problematic to say that, let's say, in the African communities or in the Indian communities, we can have outside influence. So the state can get involved in creating these public communities. That in and of itself will not be fatalistic for the change we want. But then at the end, as long as we remember, the goal is to change the empirical expectation on what the others within the right reference network will do. As long as that's the goal we are working towards, you can have institutional outsiders and insiders mix and cooperate and find a solution. So that part is not as rigid, but we need to be clear on what it is we want to achieve.
0: Now again, that's, I mean, so you're saying you're not, it's, it's a very nuanced position because you're saying you're, you're not against using law as, as such, it really very much depends on the context and equally the kind of form of the arrangements that might be not using the law, they could also be quite varied in terms of the kinds of actors who are providing these kind of fora that could facilitate these changes to come about in the way that people's expectations are operating in these settings. I think that's a very, it's quite a complex picture, but quite a a compelling one, I think, in many ways.
1: Right, I would would be the last person to say that you should not at all involve laws. I would be out of a job otherwise. But yes, the point is, even with the best intentions of the law, and this is just quickly to add a little bit of an asterisk to this discussion, we assumed a few things, just to complicate the matters, which is not always there. The first, we assumed there was 100% political will Mm. to make a difference, right? So we are assuming all the state agents are very much on board on creating this change. Mm. Second, we assumed that there will not be any selective enforcement of these expressive laws, because that adds another layer, right? If you have so many laws on paper most people are not complying with it, including the state agents, Mm. right? That means that we are giving a lot of power to state agents because as a police officer, I know that I can haul up anyone and I will find two laws that they're not complying with, right? So I am completely removing all of these concerns with enforcement, state excesses, lack of political will, etc. And I'm saying if we fi- manage to find laws which are well intentioned, how do we make sure that they create any change? And then we can go to the discussion we had.
0: Okay. Well, this is the discussion we've just been having, really focusing on work that you've been doing, as I understand it, over the last several years. I wonder if you could say, just before we close, where you're taking this next? What is the what's the what's what's the next project? What How are you going to take this research agenda forward to to the next stage? What what kind of questions will you be looking at in the, the next phase of your work on this?
1: So the first, so the next thing that's going to come up, hopefully, is a book which talks about these problems and these issues of how law influences behavior, but in a more integrated approach. So that's called, the book is called When Do People Comply With Laws? and an integrated approach to compliance and the idea is really this which is instead of just looking at specific case studies of when laws were successful right and just saying hey this is another mechanism through which law makes a difference i'm looking at really the conditions under which different motivational mechanisms work so what are the conditions under which law will have a deterrence effect What are the conditions under which law will have an expressive effect? What are the conditions under which law will update my opinions and attitudes, right? Independently saying that, oh, smoking kills and a law tells me that, will that update my attitude and opinion on it? So we know that there, there are all of these mechanisms through which law has successfully changed behaviors in the past. What we don't know is when. When does this work? When does that work? So that's the first part of the project, which is, I want to explicate the conditions under which these different mechanisms work, right? And it goes back to not understanding why it doesn't work for India, right? So that's always the underlying motivation. Once that's done, and once that project, so that conceptual part is already over with, now I'm going to go back to India in a way with the new tools and try to understand what is missing in the conditions and what homegrown solutions we can have for it. Because now we have moved away from studying successful case studies in countries where law has salience. And I want to see how to use laws to create change in countries where law doesn't have salience. So that's the empirical part of the project, which hopefully I'll be doing in the next three, four years.
0: Well, it's an absolutely fascinating project and it's a, well, it's it's a massive project as well. It's, it's really amazing. And well, we'd be very happy to, you know, publicize the new book when it comes out and also this new stream of research. So just remains me to say, thank you very much, Shubangi, for taking the time out to speak to us on the, on the governance podcast today. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It was a
0: great pleasure.